Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Memento mori. Remember that you will die. It's a Latin phrase expressing the inevitability of death. No matter how good a life you lead, nor how famous or rich you become, death always awaits. With the dawn of Christianity in the West, the symbol of death and the afterlife became dominant in art, finding its heyday in the darkest and most demoralized parts of our past during the period of the Black Death. There's a new exhibit. It's uh, ongoing at the USU Library and uh, online. You can find this, uh, well, I found it by Googling Memento Mori USU. You could, that's how I found it. You could find it that way as well. And the exhibit is called Memento Mori, the Art of Death and Mourning. This traces thematic iconographies of death, dying, and mourning. We're going to talk about this on the program today, uh, an appropriate subject for October. We're heading toward uh, Halloween, and we bring in the curator of this exhibit and digital scholarship librarian at USU, Dylan Burns. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. We also uh, bring in Laura Gelfand, professor of art history at uh, Utah State University. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Lynn McNeil joins us again, assistant professor in the folklore program at uh, USU. Happy to be here. Let me start with you, Dylan Burns. Where did this idea come from? Um, So I've always been sort of a spooky person, so (laughs) I've always been sort of interested in this. Um, I come from a rare books background, so I've always been drawn to... Um, depictions of skeletons and that sort of stuff and and things like Vesalius, which is featured in the exhibit. But um, the start of it here was um, I'm relatively new and I was digging through, because I'm new to the library, I was digging through the archives and I found we have the photograph collections of um, the Compton Photography Studio in Brigham City. Um, And they were photographers in Brigham City for... Um, over a hundred years, um, from the late 19th century up until relatively recently. And a huge number of their, uh, photographs from the early, uh, 20th century and late 19th century were funeral, uh, photography. And I was inspired by this to sort of, wow, this is something that's really neat and, and kind of odd and interesting. And I think that they're You know, so I dug through those and then um, sort of it blossomed into what it is now. Mm. Uh, Let's talk briefly about this. This I'm looking at some of these photos. Um, There's a a infant in a a white uh, dress. Looks like she's sleeping. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one that way, and then there's uh, a looks like a a boy who's in in the casket, dressed in white, with his siblings surrounding him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so very early um, in photography, um, it was, you know, it was an event. Getting your uh, photograph taken was an event. And especially for the death of young children, this was a moment when parents and family members could, uh, you know, get a memento, not to sort of <laughs> go back to the title of the exhibit, but to get a reminder of this uh, this child who had passed. So it was very common um, to take family photographs around a casket or around a, uh, a dead infant who was posed as sleeping. Um, very early on, they sort of, uh, in a macabre 
sense, uh, posed these individuals as if they were alive with sort of contraptions. But by the time we have these photographs, um, these are more, um, you know, the child is sleeping, the child is in the casket with the family posed around it. Sometimes, you know, you can see discomfort on the face of older siblings as mm-hmm. they uh, have their arm around uh, their deceased uh, sister or brother. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, you know, this it, it harkens back to days when the funeral was in the home. Um, and... It really sort of, uh, you know, it's it's this last this last moment as a family. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, funerals, uh, everything about death has moved out of the home now. It's become more sterilized, right? Um, mm-hmm. And um, industrialized, definitely. You, you, you might you might say. Um, and I guess this harkens back to the time when it really was in the home when grandma was laid out in the parlor, right? Mm-hmm. And, and everybody uh, trooped past. I, I don't know if anybody here in the panel has a, has a comment on what, what's been gained or lost because of that. Well, we've gained some pretty great Halloween traditions, I think, out of it. This is the one time of year that we really get to embrace this topic that has sort of become verboten at other times. We don't like to think about death. We don't like to be close to death. We don't like to have that intimate connection that these photographs show that we had at one time. And yet we need to clearly on some level. So, you know, thankfully, at least once a year, we get this opportunity to really zero in on it, to be a little macabre, to focus in on the darker side of things, and then with relief, let it pass by and move on to some cheerier holidays mm-hmm. that come mm-hmm. afterwards. You think that maybe that's 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 why? Because we've kind of removed death a bit, at least in the you know, the, the process of the funeral and everything. Well, we've had Halloween for a really long time. So I think that it's probably done a number of things for us culturally over time. But I do think that that anytime we remove something from the more institutional realms of our lives, we manage to sneak it back in on the folk level. Mm. So there's a lot of folklore about death because it's something that we need to think about and talk about and relate to other people about. And when we can't do it, Easily and, you know, through mainstream transmission networks, we find other ways to do it. Yeah. But it did used to be really, really mainstream. Mm -hmm. And it was super present. So that whole idea of remembering death was really, really important because people had incredibly long established relationships between the dead and the living. And you needed to have them. And it has to do with whole systems that were set up for salvation. So it's a really – it's an interesting system. I don't know if mm. you want me to go on and on about yeah, it. Uh, yes, let's – let's uh, <laughs> that be a good appropriate transition point. Um, let me just mention the exhibit is Memento Mori. You can see it at the USU Library um, and online as, as well. We have with us uh, Dylan Burns, who's the curator for the exhibit, Laura Gelfand, professor of art history, and Lynn McNeil, assistant professor in the folklore uh, program. Uh, so included in the exhibit are a lot of uh, images from the, the Middle Ages. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. So that whole idea of remembering death, like why would you want to remember death? And sure, it's present, but there are other reasons for that. And a lot of it has to do, at least to my <laughs> to my way of thinking, a lot of it has to do with uh, this system that was set up called purgatory. And a lot of people know about purgatory, but purgatory didn't exist in the very earliest stages of the church. And the first time it's ever used as a, as a term, like an actual word, it's printed in about 1160. And then it 
blossoms. So before that, you have a binary system of heaven and hell. When you develop that tertiary system, suddenly there's this third place, and it's a place of purgation where all of your sins are purged. There are lots of discussions about what it's like, and um, apparently it's exactly like hell. And then they have these big debates. Do the people in purgatory know they're in purgatory or do they think they're in hell? Because it would be way worse if you thought you were in hell. So there's this whole kind of debate about that. But it's a place where you can get out. And the system's set up so as soon as you've purged all of your sins, you get to go straight to heaven. You don't have to wait to the last judgment. And when you're dead, there's nothing you can do except hope people pray for you. That's a way of expediting that time of purgation. And there's a huge inflation in purgation times as well. So it starts with like an hour or two. And by the time you get to the 15th century, you're talking about like 20,000 years. You know, So it's this massive inflation. And then indulgences come in there as well. And that leads to a whole bunch of other things. But it's a really interesting system in which there's an economy of salvation. And prayer is one of the main ways of kind of making that economy work. And so memory and memory of the dead is critical. So those photographs are absolutely, uh, they're a holdover from that idea of wanting to remember the dead. Mm. Before we go into Dance Macabre and a few other things, um, I want to turn to Lynn McNeil. This there's the, this idea of the the dead being present with us, mm-hmm. right? That they're that they're still with us, and that that can be comforting, and it can also be scary. It can, and there's different cultures react to this differently. I mean, we have in you know contemporary Christian American culture, we tend to segregate death into certain places and certain experiences. And if you go to any of the cemeteries in Utah, certainly the one here on the USU campus is a great example, you can see not a sterile environment, but a place of really engaged interaction where people are spending time with the deceased. There's grave decorations, there's picnics, there's flags, there's flowers. We see people bringing senses of movement and sound and color, wind chimes and, and you know, decorations that help counteract the stillness, the silence, the the solemnity maybe even of death. So we do, we have that interaction with us. We tend sometimes to keep it limited in these sort of special places, liminal places, though other cultures we see different kinds of celebrations, more consistent consideration of the dead with us in our lives, Um, memories of ancestors, celebrations like the Days of the Dead, which are coming up November 1st and November 2nd, where there's active interaction with ancestors and loved ones who have passed on and efforts to give them food and candy and invite them to the party with us in this brief period of time that they get to hang out Mm -hmm. uh, on the same plane that we do. Mm -hmm. You mentioned liminal places. Mm -hmm. These can be places of, you know, interaction. And um, I was reading an article uh, recently, from last year, by our own uh, Alyssa Roberts here, one of our, our producers, um, who's, I think, um, got some quotes from you and from Charlie Heenemann and, and some others. Uh, either you or Charlie, I think, was saying that um, college can be a, it's a liminal time. It is, absolutely. We are in between the innocence and other people being in charge of childhood, and yet you're not totally out on your own in charge of your own destiny the way you will be when you graduate. And we can see 
liminal phases and experiences attract other forms of liminality. So we see a lot of rites of passage taking place during the college years. We see an interest in these sort of right on the edge or in between sorts of behaviors where you're testing out various things and various identities. And it is, it can be beneficial to be liminal and it can be very stressful Mm -hmm. to be liminal. Included in that article, it was at least one uh, story that made the hair on the back of my neck uh, stand up. It's a, a ghost, I think, in the Raby West building. Mm-hmm. I'm not yeah. sure if that's where you work. That is where I work. Thanks for reminding so, yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty stressful sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess when we're in these liminal times or places in our lives, we mm-hmm. can be, maybe our minds are more open to yep. and when you these stack, supernatural experiences. When you stack that liminality, if you're in Raby West and it's midnight, and you're all alone, and it's a time of day you wouldn't normally be in that building, and you hear one of the ghosts in Raby West is a young boy who chases a ball down the hallway. And lots of our students have stories of hearing a child running up and down the hall, looking out the door, seeing the ball roll by, waiting Mm. to watch the child follow it. No one comes, and they go and look out the door, and there's no one there, no ball, no child, no Mm. noise. It's very creepy. I think I'll contact you by telephone uh, okay. from yeah. now on. I'm, I'm not yeah, no, go over. come over and <laughs> visit us. Not going to go over, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Dylan Burns, you mentioned uh, you're into rare books, and yeah. there, there's, Bert, I guess, in what's the connection there between, between this and and these these images of the macabre? Um, you know, so in our collection, um, we have a book of hours, and a book of hours is this devotional text. Um, it's a highly personal text. Um, ours is, we have a printed one, but we also have a manuscript one. That, that's one that is, that is written by hand and illustrated by hand. So our manuscript uh, um, book of ours has an image in it that I sort of, in looking through it, for looking for things for this exhibit, I found. And it, um, it's very cool. It's, uh, it has a long history and and Laura maybe can talk about this, um, but it's this this story of the three living and the three dead, and it's a it's a story of three kings who go out into the woods and they're hunting, and they are confronted during their hunt um, with three dead kings, and the the dead kings say, you know, I was once fair as you are. Um, as I am now, dead, you shall be. So it's a it's a very popular story, and it was really neat to sort of find it in one of our manuscripts. And this, these are, I mean, this is not a, it's not a spooky book. It's not meant to be a spooky book, but um, it's it's a religious text. But these are stories that these are people that you know they they held dear, and these are stories that were passed down. So it's it's we featured on the exhibit both um physical and um online it's it's a really cool image laura giffon maybe we could uh, expand on that this is so uh, those um those the three living and the three dead or the three quick and the three dead is it is really common and that whole phrase about as you are um i will be is also shows up on tombs all over the place there's a really famous example in florence um on Masaccio, there's a trinity above it and they're all really um i think about this sort of remembering death but again kind of engaged with 
that economy of salvation. Like, why is it that you want to remember that? And then there's a direct link between something like that and the dance of death. And those dance of deaths are, are similar as well, where you see that every level of society, so everyone is going to die, and it's this universal, and so this skeleton form comes and kind of asks you to dance, basically. And you see every every sector of society, so kings, popes, bishops, you know, everyone from the very very rich to the very poor all dance, women, old women, young women, everybody. And there are huge, there were in cemeteries, really big, um, very sort of extensive cycles that would show the dance of death. And so it was a super popular motif, and it really is related to that story as well. Mm-hmm. And those things showed up everywhere. They were just omnipresent. And I don't think anyone thought they were spooky. They were just reality. Mm-hmm. And some, it's, a, it's a reminder, you know, like remember the dead and pray for them because you need somebody to pray for you after you're dead. And so the system, the system works. Where did this uh, grow? I guess it grew out of spread of Christianity. Yeah, so I Catholicism. Guess. It's Catholicism? part of okay. it's part of Catholic mm-hmm. doctrine. Okay. Back bef- you know before you have anything but Catholicism. I mean, it's the church. Um, it's it's part of that system, and it's a system that really engages the church as well. So you've got you know the living and the dead, but you need the church as part of that intercessory system. Mm-hmm. So it locks the church into the system as well. So people become more and more dependent on the church. So when the church first starts, you've really got sort of isolated monks and in the early Middle Ages, just sort of they pray for everybody else. But the church sees this reason, um, I think, especially post-Black Death, and people want to get involved. And so the systems are sort of set up in a way to encourage that engagement and encourage that involvement, to encourage people to come to church more often. I think people used to go on average maybe once a year. Mm. And so there's this huge... um, effort to get people to start to go to church more often, to see the mass more often, to become more engaged in their own salvation. And it's, of course, economically beneficial for the church at the same time. So it's, again, it's how the church becomes empowered and the equal of rulers who are, you know, more sort of civil rulers. You have this kind of two-part system there as well. Hmm. What what was the effect of the Black Death? I could, could imagine you know, entire it's villages wiped out. Crazy, that's going right? to that's going to show up in art, right? It's crazy. I mean, so you've got what are what are the years? So fourteen thirteen sixty eight, mm, right around thirteen sixty. Yeah, so the forty eight. Forty eight. Forty eight. Forty eight. Okay, sorry, I don't. I haven't been doing that for a while. So there are four years. It spreads everywhere. It's massive, and it comes from Eurasia and moves across, um, and it's carried on ships. They think fleas on rats, and this bubonic plague, it knocked out between in four years between 75 to 200 million people. And the population of Europe didn't recover until the 17th century. Mm-hmm. So it's a massive, massive, massive thing. And the thing that I always found interesting about it, and I think students do as well, is that it killed the very young and the very old. So it left this kind of healthy population and, and a gap as well. And so you have these people who remember this horrifying event where, you know, 60, 80 percent of your village dies. I mean, it's it's just unbelievable to think about. And it they have they die quickly. So within days. So it's a really um, shocking kind of event. And the aftermath of that is just huge. Hmm. So did, did that influence uh, Dance Macabre and the, oh, the other? Oh, definitely. The definitely. Other, um, so you see all of those cycles showing up around 14 
15, 14, like as they start to recover economically, you have this real move towards that. So the 14th, like period I study, 1450s, you've got loads and loads of imagery that's related to Dance Macabre, the Memento Mori, the Ars Moriendi. So these books that tell you how to um, have a good death. So all of those things happen at in that aftermath, in that intervening period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break. I want to come back and talk about ours, Mordiendi. Okay. So the good death, is that what mm-hmm. the, the good death? And uh, I was just remembering, um, I had a guest on a uh, uh, discussion a few months ago and uh, rummaging around in his uh, CV. That's one of the pleasures. <laughs> rummage around in people's CVs and find interesting things. Um, by the way, one of uh, I was talking about this uh, before we went on the air. One of the things I found, mm-hmm. Laura Gale found in your CV mm-hmm. is you've written a very interesting book on uh, people and their dogs. I edited it, so I don't, you edited, I okay. don't count as writing it. So um, I edited it in in the Middle Ages. So it's um, or, it's called Our Dogs Ourselves. Uh, dogs in early medieval and modern art, literature, and society. And it is so, it was such a labor of love and such a fabulous project. Mm-hmm. So it came out last year. Okay. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. So where I was going with this is, uh, so Colin Dickey, uh, who's the person I interviewed, um, has written some interesting books. Um, and he is a member of the Order of the Good Death. Mm-hmm. And maybe we talk a little bit about that. So people are thinking about this today. You know, ours Moriendi to the Order of the Good Death. More on uh, Memento Mori. It's an exhibit ongoing at uh, USU uh, and online. And we have with us the curator and digital scholarship librarian Dylan Burns. Lara Gelfand is professor of art history at USU. And Lynn McNeil is assistant professor in the folklore program at uh, USU. Uh, before we go to break, uh, we have some events I think people would like to, to plug. So uh, Lara Gelfand, terrific it's an art auction and dance party on Saturday, October 28th. Yep. And this is at the Copper Mill. Doors open at 7. Right. And all of the funds that we raise go for um, graduate student scholarships. So it's a really – and we sell art. It is the one we're different than any other benefit. So And it's art produced by um, successful alumni, our faculty. So it's good art. Okay, good art, good. <laughs> uh, Dylan Burns, there's an event uh, coming up I know you wanted to, to mention. Yeah, it's actually tonight. Um, it's Fright Night. It's a event that's put on by uh, Phi Alpha Theta, which is the History Honor Society here on campus through the History Department. So it's organized by history students. Um, and it's an event, it's, it's going to be at the library. Um, it's at 6 p.m., I believe. Um, and it's a bunch of people sharing ghost stories. Um, I'll be telling a story. Lynn McNeil, tell me a story as well? Sadly, no. Oh, you won't, okay. I told a really good, really scary story last year, and that's going to have to carry me for two years, okay. apparently. <laughs> right. But tonight, okay. the English department does have its Poe in the Dark event, which I believe is an hour after the Fright Night. So okay. you've got many options it's, this evening. It's, it's yeah. spooky night. There's some <laughs> great things happening. Maybe, Dylan, uh, later in the program, we can get you to... Tell a story for us, and, and Lynn, Lynn as well, it's, uh, 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 since you're not going to be at uh, Fright Night. Anyway, let's go to break, and when we come back, more on Memento Mori. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Kane College of Arts concatenation, faculty and alumni art exhibit in the Chase Fine Arts Center's Tippets Galleries, now through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., details at cca.usu.edu. It's haunting time on the Putumayo World Music Gallery. Halloween is a time of spooky celebration, and on the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll hear songs about ghosts, 
spirits, and black magic. Hey, there's a hole in the pumpkin. There's a must be Halloween. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Halloween Around the World on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. It's Halloween, a time of spirit and flesh, magic and mayhem, tricks and treats. We hear about Lou Garou, werewolves in Louisiana, and the devil in daily life of Mississippi blues. Also, seasonal sounds from Hal and Wolf, Dr. John, Memphis Minnie, and Johnny Cash. I'm Nick Spitzer. Join me for American Roots from PRX. Join us Saturday night at 8 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about death and dying on the program. Hope you haven't uh, changed the <laughs> dial. Uh, hope it's interesting for you. Uh, appropriate on, uh, in October. Of course, we're heading toward uh, Halloween. We're also heading toward All Saints Day and uh, Day of the Dead, and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of interesting uh, things. This is a time of year where we, Lynn McNeil, you were saying we kind of give ourselves permission to interact with the dead. Yeah, absolutely. A thing that we don't do quite so often anymore these days. So we tend to embrace it when we get the opportunity. And uh, we are basing our discussion on a, an interesting exhibit at the USU Library and online. It's called Memento Mori, a Latin phrase uh, meaning remember that you will die. And so there's uh, interesting art here of dance macabre and, and other things. Also uh, headstones, cemeteries and funerals. Um, we'll get into talking about that as well. There's uh, imagery there's uh, you have uh, uh, we have with us the curator of the exhibit Dylan Burns Dylan you have um, a uh, funeral program from John Taylor a mm-hmm. president of the uh, of the Mormon Church yeah yeah um, so we have a handful of uh, printed materials from uh, funerals um, we have the collection of the funeral home down on Center uh, Allen Hall yes right? mm-hmm. yes so we have their we have the uh, printing company that made their flyers. We have their papers. So we have like decades of flyers and uh, keepsakes and stuff that they printed for the funeral home. Um, so we have a number of uh, sort of famous Utah Mormon uh hierarchy people we have a a lot of their materials of like their you know announcing their death or celebrating their life and that sort of stuff we have two portraits that are on um loan from the cash daughters of utah pioneers um of two um a quorum of the 12 member um kimball hebrew c kimball yes yes Mm -hmm. and his wife uh one of his wives and um they are on loan, and they. It's interesting that these are things that were mass produced. That these are these are portraits and posters that were produced by a company in Philadelphia that would produce funeral mourning posters that you would hang up in your house, I guess, or you would you know have it at your church or or whatever to remember people. So um, it's it's part of this death economy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Um, Lynn McNeil, I want to, by the way, to reintroduce our guest. Dylan uh, Burns is the curator for the Memento Mori. Lara Gelfand is professor of art history. And Lynn McNeil is assistant professor in the folklore program at USU. Lynn McNeil, um, 
included in the exhibit is uh, headstones, symbols, mm-hmm. statues. Yes. We have in Logan a, a very interesting opportunity to, in that if you're on the USU campus, the, the, uh, the Logan Cemetery is right on campus. We are very lucky to have, you know, a cemetery right here that we can experience. And we have a lot of really striking and interesting headstones in that cemetery, ranging from, you know, very, very old to very, very new. Um, obviously, one of the most famous is the Weeping Woman, the Cronquist family plot, very tall, eye-catching statue, a form that in general is known as a surrogate mourner. A lot of people assume that the woman on top of that pillar is a sculpture of, I think her name was Elaine Cronquist, who's buried there. But it's not. It's a general figure that people built when they couldn't always be present mourning. They wanted someone to be there in a perpetual state of mourning. And so you would design a figure like this, though. The legend has grown up that this is a depiction of the woman there and that out of grief for her dead children and legend varies on whether they died of natural causes and she died of grief or whether she killed them. And she regretted that choice and killed herself. But if you go there, depends on when, who you talk to, if you go there on Halloween or at midnight or the night of a full moon and say, weep, woman, weep, or cry, lady, cry, she is reported to cry. Sometimes tears of blood. Mm. Wow. So check it out. It's hit or miss whether or not it's tears of blood. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you've, I think, a folklore program has taken groups there, right? Absolutely, yes. Our folklore club regularly does Mm. storytelling there on Halloween nights. Um, I take a lot of my folklore classes there to visit. And there's other amazing headstones that that sort of show the range of what we can express when we start designing the material culture of death. There's a very, very beautiful and poignant headstone built entirely out of Legos by um, a young child who passed away. It was built by his father. Yeah, it's it's very poignant. Uh, mm-hmm. um, it's it just it gets me every time I mm-hmm. I walk past there. Uh, the representation of a childhood cut short, right? absolutely a life a life cut short. Um, what are some other things that uh, are uh, uh, cemeteries are very interesting places, and you can learn a lot about a society through the through the uh, uh, through through cemeteries. I used to go to the cemetery in in um, Clarkston. Mm-hmm. Used to work out in Amalga as a nighttime security guard, which was a that's a whole other chapter of my life. <laughs> and so when I got done at seven a.m., sometimes I would drive the short distance from Amalga to Clarkston, which is a very uh, iconic cemetery, and just walk around. I wonder what people thought. There's a they've hired a security guard at, for the cemetery. I don't know, but you see, and this is typical of many uh, cemeteries, you see, uh, you know, whole generations of children. Cut down. He was in time before mm-hmm. penicillin, for example, and um, and it's, it's very poignant. Um, you also see, and you have Dylan Burns in the uh, exhibit. You have uh, some examples of some headstones. So, of course, in LDS, uh, predominantly LDS communities, you have uh, the temple, mm-hmm. and you you point out in the exhibit uh, notes that the, that image was not possible until sort of more modern technology. Right. So. Um that is not a um, that is not a symbol. Uh, so the the very popular symbol for LDS uh, gravestones um, in the 19th century and the early 20th century was the clasped hands. So the two hands clasping. Sometimes one has a uh, uh, a feminine cuff and the other has a masculine cuff, and it's this idea that 
there's a reunion in heaven. Um, But with the um, invention of of more sort of precise uh, carving tools, um, you start to see in the 50s and 60s just a huge explosion in um, uh, temple iconography. So usually it will be the temple where they uh, the couple was sealed, and it will have their their um, their wedding date and their sealed date. It, uh, if those are two different, if it's the same, then it will just have sealed. Um, and you can always tell where they're from because you can see, you can recognize the temple. That a lot of them out in uh, out in the cemetery here on campus are Logan Temple. There's there's Brigham City. There's there's Ogden. There's of course, the Salt Lake Temple, and because those are so, you know, iconic, you can right away tell where they were, uh, where they were from, and mm-hmm. where they were sealed. And of course, this is the LDS version of a yearning for, you know, that the life goes on, right? Mm-hmm. And certification of belief that life goes on, and, and this is uh, depicted in, you know, in many different ways in many different cultures. I, I'm sure it's. Oh, including yeah. in the Middle Ages. Oh, definitely. And you wanted to leave an image of yourself. So as soon as it's actually possible to have something that resembles a portrait, they have them. And you see um, two monuments that will have like the the father and the, the mother and then these long string of kids behind them. And they all look sort of anonymous. You know, all the women will be on one side, all the, the males will be on the other. And it's actually always the women are on the right and the men are on the left. And then they're all sort of lined up and you'll see these big long strings of them. And it's again about memory because this would be something that would be hung over the altar. Uh, so you would be reminded to pray for these people. Um, you see carved versions of it as well, but you see them all the time. And again, it's just ways of remembering. My favorite tomb that I ran across at one point was this Spanish tomb, and he was a Spanish nobleman. And the whole thing had been set up. It was from I don't know, sometime in the 14th century, but it had been set up. It was metal, and it had an armature in it, so it could actually be sat up to pray towards the altar. Isn't that fantastic? So, um, yeah, so there's this whole kind of they need to – I think there's a belief, too, that those images are surrogates and that they, they pray for themselves as well mm-hmm. as encouraging prayer. So it's a kind of double whammy. Uh, you're able to join this conversation. Uh, we're opening the phone lines, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we have received this email from Glenn, who uh, lives in the Uetta Basin. Um, he says, hello, I just saw an exhibit on this subject many years. I saw an exhibit on the subject many years ago, which focused uh, upon how death references called Memento Mori really came into prominence with the plague in Europe around 1348. It showed headstone art before and after the plague around 1348 and how the use of skulls proliferated. There was quite a bit of art related to the dance of death, the dance de macabre, etc., the exhibit also showed links that led to the movements of the Renaissance, Reformation, and later Enlightenment. Great show, says Glenn. So thanks, thanks for that, uh, Glenn. And uh, there are many images in this exhibit. So USU is really lucky to have its own Memento Mori uh, featured in uh, uh, special collections. Um, we have our own. It's Oli from Skull, um, and that is, you know, it's... It's a very popular item in our collection. It's on display all the time. Anyone can go and see it. It's even when 
uh, Special Collections is closed. It's in an area that you can see, and it's the skull of the uh, last and largest and most fearsome grizzly bear uh, in Logan Canyon. And um, the story that accompanies it is just that this this is just a massive, powerful, uh, just crazy, huge grizzly bear. And it, of course, like everything, died. And uh, its skull is left behind as a sort of tool to remember that underneath all of our sort of skin is uh, Skull too. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it Old from Skull is, is so interesting. Boy Scout troops come through all the time mm-hmm. to come and see Old from Skull. And they actually, the Boy Scouts had a role in bringing it back. It's a very complicated story. It was at the Smithsonian. It's now back at USU. It's very complicated. But yeah, I mean, our, our like prized piece in our special collections is, in fact, a memento mori. So the scouts would come through, they'd see the skull, and then I guess the story would be told, right? Yes. About yeah. Old Ephraim. What, what role did the skulls play? Uh, Glenn mentions uh, before and after, and after the Black Death, then you have proliferation of skulls as, as images. Well, I think as far as I can tell, it's just because you couldn't really bury the dead efficiently enough. I mean, there were just massive die-outs happening. And so there was this presence of skeletons, and, and they were sort of everywhere. And so that's, I think, where you start to find those really interesting things, especially when you get into the 17th century. And there are nice examples in Rome where in the catacombs, they decorate them, they use them. There's a, a really famous um, area in Rome that has the ceilings all decorated with bones in sort of Rococo style. And it's not unfamiliar. You see it in Paris. They're all over. You just couldn't bury the dead fast enough. And so you would boil them down. You would, you know, they didn't really know what to do to to make it safer or cleaner either. And so you just had all of these skulls all over the place and they start to make ornament with them. And it's a really effective memento mori, right? You Mm -hmm. know, it's what could be more effective. Yeah. And here in in this country, we see a transition in the 17th century, the most popular tombstone style was a death's head, the skull with with wings by it. And if you look at the other tombstone decorations, it would be very earthly sort of things, grave diggers, tools, and crossed bones. And if you, when we watch that change, I mean, starting there all the way up to what we have today with this incredible personalization where you can have not just carving of portraits, but actual photographs embedded in your tombstone, we see this shift in how we perceive death. The skulls, the death head imagery turns into cherubs. We see something a little bit more positive, a little bit more hopeful, a little bit more looking towards our time out of purgatory. And then we see a kind of a secular turn as well, where we start getting imagery that speaks to remembrance and the living and things like that. Mm. Um, So yeah, it tells us a lot. I'm, this might be a good transition point uh, to talk a little bit about Halloween and All Hallows Day and Day of the Dead. Um, I think I'm detecting an increase in popularity in, in Halloween in, among adults. I think that, so. That many adults are embracing this as 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 what? I don't know. <laughs> I think that kind of depends on who the adults are. I think there's a lot of different ways we can embrace this. I think on the one hand, adults love any opportunity to sort of give in to the carnivalesque during a liminal time period. Mardi Gras is an excellent example. Um, and Mardi Gras, of course, is also has its roots in a religious holiday. We tend not to think of it that way um, here in the U.S., but Mardi Gras is the Fat Tuesday before Ash Wednesday, which kicks off the season of Lent, a time of solemnity and sacrifice uh, before Easter. 
And Halloween, similarly, uh, comes to us from, as best we can tell, ancient Celtic sources, the original Celtic celebration of Samhain, which was, it is now being called into question whether or not that was the the Celtic New Year. That was an idea that came out of the 19th century that scholars very recently are now starting to say, "Mm, maybe not. But it was definitely a celebration of the dead. And that grew into what we have as All Saints Day and All Souls Day now in the Catholic Church. I think it was Pope Gregory I, I think in the early 600s, who said um, to his missionaries, don't try and obliterate the beliefs you find. Try and incorporate them. And so we see this effort being made. We get a lot of um, Catholic holidays that grew out of these pre-Christian traditions. And All Saints Day and All Souls Day are most commonly tied to this idea of Samhain when the veil between the worlds was thin and souls were abroad. And you could communicate with those people who had passed on All Souls Day. November 2nd is a great representation of this. It's when we celebrate all the people who've passed on the year before. And I think there's a need for that. So in addition to sort of the the party aspect of Halloween that lets us leave our identities behind and dress up and act crazy and eat a bunch of candy and, you know, do all these things that normally we would be much more restrained about. I think we do also see sort of a growing appreciation for that more solemn role that this holiday has once played, which is giving us an opportunity to really remember and maybe even interact with people who've gone before us. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take another break. We're overdue for a break, and when we come back, we'll uh, we'll talk more about this. I want to get into um, Day of the Dead, and uh, Dylan, you have in the exhibit. Uh, um, I'm trying to look this up here. Uh, Santa Muerte, mm-hmm. um, and we definitely want to get to Ars Mortiendi. Okay. Promised it for the last segment. We'll definitely get this in, in our last segment coming up. Uh, so uh, before we go to break again, um, let's uh, plug away. Okay. So, so you terror- want to talk about Terrific? Uh, terrific is going to be on Saturday, this coming Saturday, uh, at at the Copper Mill, which for those of you in Logan, it's the old Hamiltons and then the old Logan Steakhouse. Um, but it's an auction and dance party and costume contest and super fabulous and we um, auction off art produced by faculty graduate students and successful alumni and it's a really really fun event so it starts at seven and you can buy tickets online uh, through the art department or buy them at the door and all of the funds go to help pay for graduate student scholarships and this is october 28th saturday and a couple of events tonight so dylan yeah, so um, tonight at 6, uh, the library is hosting uh, the History Department's Fright Night, which is a um, collection of, it's going to be storytellers telling really awesome ghost stories. Um, it, it's a really popular event, and it's it because we're having the exhibit, and the exhibit's so spooky, we're having it in a library this year. And then another event, uh, Lynn. Yes, also tonight at 7 p.m. in Old Main, room 225, is Sigma Tau Delta and the English Department's Poe in the Dark. So we get sort of a literary bent on good spooky stories. And uh, perhaps in our last segment we could hear a story or two. Uh, (laughs) By the way, just to set this up before we go to break, uh, Glenn uh, in the Ona Basin emailed us, and you can as well, upraxis at gmail.com. Glenn previously on, on these types of programs sent in a spooky story about a headless horseman in the oil fields in the Uta Basin. 
So thanks for sending that cool. in. If you have another story, Glenn, send it in or anybody else. UPRAccess at gmail.com. UPRAccess at gmail.com. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Year of the Arts, celebrating the power of the arts to elevate the human spirit and affirming the university's commitment to the arts. More information at usu.edu slash year of the arts. This week in This American Life. Okay, the earth is round, right? Revolves around the sun and the sun rises in the east, sets in the west. We all know this with certainty, confidence. But why? Like, how do we know this? There's a place in the Arctic where a group firmly believes that the sun is now rising in the wrong spot. And we were kind of looking at each other just going, whoa, what does that mean? It's this week. Join us Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU King College of the Arts Theater Arts Department presenting Sideways Stories from Wayside School, a Theater for Young Audiences production, this Friday and Saturday at 7.30 p.m. in the USU Morgan Theater. Details at cca.usu.edu. You're listening to Access Utah. We are talking about Memento Mori on the program today. That's an exhibit at USU Library and online. And the full title is Memento Mori, the Art of Death and Mourning. Memento Mori is a Latin phrase meaning remember you will die. And so we've talked about a lot of the uh, elements of this exhibit and uh, an appropriate time to talk about this. We're in October heading toward Halloween and All Saints Day and um, and the Day of the Dead. We have with us uh, Dylan Burns, who's Digital Scholarship Librarian at USU and curator for this exhibit. Laura Gelfand is Professor of Art History at USU, and Lynn McNeil is Assistant Professor in the Folklore Program at Utah State University. You're welcome to join this conversation, if you'd like, by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. In this segment of the program, we're looking for your ghost story or a scary story and hopefully prevail on a couple of my guests to tell some stories uh, here before we uh, do that i want to have been uh, promoting this laura gelfand i want to have you talk a little about about ars moriendi so the ars moriendi was a text it was super super popular um they think that it was i don't know within a few years it's the first one is maybe about 1415 um, 1450 is the date for the second printing. There's a long version and a short version, but there were about 50,000 copies printed, which is insane for back then. That is huge. That's a huge bestseller. And basically, it's instructions on how to have a good death. And so you need to follow the, all of these instructions in order to basically avoid purgatory or have as little time in purgatory as possible and go straight to heaven. And I always have made these jokes about how you know, the worst thing that could happen to you is to be unprepared for death during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, or to have gone to church and done all the right things. And then you walk out the door and you think, man, I hate my neighbor. And then you get run over by a cart. So basically, like, you, you definitely want to be prepared. You want to do all the right things and avoid avoid the hassles on your way to heaven. <laughs> now you got me thinking about Monty Python. I know. <laughs> Bring out, Bring your, out dead. your dead. Bring out your dead. Yep. Which is, you know, there's, there's mm-hmm. a lot in the Holy Grail is based on some, Definitely. some good Those history. Those guys are right? brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to bring this forward. As I said before, there's an organization called the Order of the Good Death, and they talk about the death positive movement. I'll just read a couple of things in their mission statement. One, I believe that by hiding death and dying behind closed doors, we do more harm than good to our society. Number two, I believe that the culture of silence around death should be broken through discussion, gatherings, art, innovation, and scholarship. 
Um, and number three, I believe that talking about and engaging with my inevitable death is not morbid, but displays a natural curiosity about the human condition. Then they go on to include uh, some uh, uh, principle about the green death that should be environmentally mm-hmm. uh, friendly, the, you know, the, the death and, and burial uh, practices. So that's, it's interesting. This, some of the elements of the Ars Mordiendi in the Middle Ages are definitely are, are being brought forward to today. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's a really interesting idea that, you know, <clears throat> and the idea about not, not sort of putting it aside because it is inevitable. I mean, that's the one, one of the few things we know is going to happen. So it's, it just makes sense. And I always think that connection between the living and the dead is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And having systems set up to make that happen when we don't have those now. Many of them are broken. And so it's a really interesting thing to watch. People want, want those, to mm-hmm. sort of almost crave those. Mm-hmm. Lynn McNeil, I wonder, um, just briefly, you talk about uh, Day of the Dead. This mm-hmm. is, uh, of course, more of a Hispanic culture, right? Yes, though it, it stems from the the Catholic holidays of All Saints Day and All Souls Day on November 1st and November 2nd. And, of course, we get Halloween from All Hallows, meaning All Saints, evening, so the evening before. And that's why October 31st is our Halloween. And these... Uh, it, it's really the Days of the Dead. It's the two days, November 1st and 2nd. And it's celebrated in a lot of different parts of the world, though I think that here we certainly have the the Hispanic manifestations of it in our minds with um, the sugar skulls and the, the, you know, skeletons dressed to the nines and out dancing and, and celebrating and eating. And there's people um, set up altars in their own households. Um, folk altars are a wonderful way to get a sense of how people have the lived experience of religion and they set out food for the deceased. And and it really is a full, I mean, we think about how do we celebrate a holiday with the living? We eat with them, we dance with them, we talk with them. That's what we do with the dead. During the Days of the Dead, we have these, you know, souls and spirits fully invited into our home. And then at the end of it, we get to say, okay, now, you know, be at peace, you go rest, we'll see you again next year. You know, we can have that that greater distinction between life and death for the rest of the year. And that's a really common sort of social function of festival is that we we can rest a little bit easier at certain times of the year if we deal with something that's maybe stressful or controversial or over the top in these organized segments. Mardi Gras being another great example. If we go crazy for one day, we're ready to be a little bit more tame for the next 40. Mm. Dylan. Um, I wonder if, if you could um, – did you have a comment on that? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I think – and I think I know where you're going on this because you, you kind of set it up in the last segment. But it uh, – the Day of the Dead um, stuff has, has now been connected to uh, Santa Muerte, which is this uh, saint of holy death, this holy death um, saint. And it's it's kind of a rejection of the organized – um, acceptable uh, celebrations of death that are sort of um, allowed by the Catholic Church because Santa Muerte is often depicted in much the same way as any other uh, saintly figure. Um, she is usually a woman. She's dressed as a saintly figure, but she's a skeleton. Um, it is... Um, popular. It has its roots in the same place that the uh, Day of the Dead um, celebrations do, but it's a it's a modern 
uh, phenomena. It's a folk saint um, in northern Mexico and the southwest United States, and it's been condemned by the Catholic Church as sort of uh, being outside of what their beliefs are. It's also been associated, I think, somewhat uh, unfairly with cartel culture, that it is it is the saint of the cartel or whatever, but it's 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 a it's a modern um it's a modern celebration of death um it has connections to cartel life but it's not it, it's larger than that it has a longer history than the cartels it um and it's it's a really fascinating movement that is sort of gaining steam and it's it's really there's a a relatively new book about it um, that came out a couple of years ago. That's really fascinating. And it's included in the exhibit that we've been talking about, Memento Mori, and we've uh, we've run out of time. So you'll have to go to Fright Night and the other events to hear some stories. Um, or you could share your story at upraxess.gmail.com, and we'll get it on in a future program. Um, but we've had with us Dylan Burns, Digital Scholarship Librarian and Curator for Memento Mori, which you can find online and at the USU Library uh, on, ongoing. Uh, thanks for coming in. Thank you. And uh, Fright Night begins when? 6 p.m. It's in Library 101. 6 p.m. Library 101. Lynn McNeil has joined us. She's assistant professor in the folklore program at USU. Lynn, thanks for coming in. Thank you. And the the event tonight? Poe in the Dark at 7 p.m. in Old Main 225. All right. And uh, Lara Gelfand, professor of art history, has joined us. Thank you. Thank you. And Terrific is an art auction and a dance party, and that is on Saturday, October 28th at the Copper Mill, 7 p.m. Great. Thanks. And thanks for everybody for coming in. Uh, good discussion. You can keep this going at upraxis at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. K-pop stars are products of fantasy world. On the next Radio Lab, we enter the multi-billion dollar image machine that is K-pop. The girl next door, all cute, and you know, like the ideal girlfriend kind of idea. It's a prison you decide to walk into. Join us for the next Radio Lab. Join us this Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.